Howdy, everyone, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast here with the Georgetown University College Republicans. In this episode, we will continue our coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. Today, we'll talk about the states that were in the political spotlight just last year, New Jersey and Virginia. Both the Garden State and the Old Dominion saw Republicans do exceptionally well compared to the 2020 elections, even sweeping the statewide races in Virginia. Will these results translate into similar outcomes this November? The two guests joining me today will answer that very question. So without further ado, let's get right into it. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Patrick to discuss the elections in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Patrick recently graduated from the George Washington University, which, fun fact, is my mom's alma mater, and is the current chairman of the D.C. Federation of College Republicans. Patrick, welcome to the show. We're very happy to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. All right, let's get started. So what was your first reaction when Glenn Youngkin won last November, and why do you think he won? Governor Youngkin's win was a repudiation of the Biden administration and the vapid and empty campaign that his opponent, Terry McAuliffe, ran. The entire campaign, Terry McAuliffe spent talking down Virginians, doubling down on mass mandates, and ignoring issues like inflation. Governor Youngkin, on the other hand, spent the campaign talking about issues that affect Virginians every day. And he had a real agenda to change their lives for the better, like repealing the grocery tax and reopening schools. And I think that's why Governor Youngkin was able to overcome such a big Democratic margin and swing the state back into the hands of Republicans and deliver great down-ballot wins. We retook control of the House of Delegates and we flipped the other two statewide offices. Yeah, and those ads, uh, as you mentioned, like Glenn Youngkin focusing on the grocery tax, uh, had a great ad about that. He also talked about taxes under Terry McAuliffe saying, oh yeah, tax collection agency ad. Some of my favorites I've seen in a long time for any candidate in any state. And I campaign. I worked for the Youngkin campaign. I volunteered in Fairfax County, which is not conservative territory. It's a very blue uh, county and the one that Democrats are hoping he puts them over the finish line every year in Virginia. And one thing I noticed was a lot of parents for Yunkin signs going up everywhere in Fairfax County. And normally they say, oh, don't trust the, um, the yard sign battle. That's not reflective of what the vote will be in November. But it seemingly was very much an indication that the energy was on Yunkin's side because I saw many more Yunkin signs than McAuliffe signs anywhere in Virginia. And this is supposed to be you know, deep blue territory. I mean, Fairfax County, 60, 70 percent. Democratic votes in, in the past election cycle. So seeing high energy for the Republicans focusing in on that education topic as well and going against the Biden administration really, I think, helped him galvanize voters. Voters I talked to were fed up and it wasn't necessarily voters who you would expect to, to have voted for a Republican for governor. A lot of them were Democrats who had voted for Joe Biden. They voted reliably Democratic, but they understood the problems going on and re-electing Terry McAuliffe uh, would only be a continuation of those disastrous policies that have uh, hurt Virginia. You're seeing that now with the California electric vehicle bill that's affecting Virginia, that Democrats have tagged along and said California's law will be Virginia's law. And so Youngkin is going in there and, and cleaning up a, a lot of the mess that Governor, Young, uh, Governor Northam left him and, and Governor McAuliffe uh, before him. But now we're in 2022. Do you think that congressional candidates in Virginia will, rep will replicate Youngkin's playbook? How well do you think they'll replicate Youngkin's playbook? 
And do you think those same issues that animated the Youngkin campaign will animate uh, Virginia voters for congressional Republicans? I think that we have some great candidates running in uh, 2022 in Virginia, and I think they will probably touch on many of the same issues that Governor Youngkin did. And and when Governor Youngkin won, it was because a lot of Virginians in the Commonwealth lent their vote to a person that, you know, they couldn't probably have imagined supporting, if not for a lot of the disastrous uh, policies of Ralph Northam and Joe Biden. And I think that it's been clear that in the past year that Governor Youngkin has been in office. He's delivered on his promises. And I think that Virginians will see that when Republicans make their promises, they deliver. And I don't think that people will be having buyer's remorse by lending their vote to Glenn Youngkin. And I think that they will uh, continue um, to trend towards the Republican Party. Uh, We're the only party in Virginia that is actually advocating to reduce costs and regressive taxes on working families and to keep open. And I think sending a team in D.C. to follow up on Governor Youngkin's work is exactly what uh, Virginia and Fairfax County need. Yeah, it's an absolutely great point. And and Governor Youngkin's approval rating is consistently, I think the last one was 55 percent. None of them I've seen have been under 50 percent. So it shows that even in in a state that many are considering, you know, a bluish shade of purple, or a blue state outright, a lot of people have already deemed it a blue state, uh, can support a Republican governor. And I think that I agree. I think that that will have repercussions down ballot in a positive way for for Republican congressional candidates. He's been campaigning for them. Uh, This weekend, it was for Yesley Vega in the 7th district going up against Abigail Spamberger. He's also been very adv- uh, strong, a strong advocate for Jen Kiggins in the second district and Hung Kao in Virginia's 10th district. And that's a district I'm pacing, uh, keeping a close eye on because that's Loudoun County. That's the heartland of Northern Virginia, the suburbs that trended away from Trump and trended away from Republicans in years past, but swung towards uh, Yunkin and, and cut down that margin. It was, a, I think, I believe it's a Biden plus 18 district. So getting it within 10 points, I would say is a big win for Republicans statewide, not necessarily winning it. Of course, that would be a huge offset, but getting somewhere very close and, and making uh, Jennifer Wexton a little nervous on election night, I think is just enough to prove where Virginia's future is. Um, but I mentioned those three districts, the second district, which is uh, by Virginia Beach. And of course, those two in Northern Virginia, the suburbs of D.C., uh, do you think Republicans have a very strong chance of flipping those seats? I know a lot of people believe Spanberger might hold on because her district's bluer. She's an incumbent. Um, and Elaine Luria is on the January 6th commission. So her primetime, somewhat primetime coverage uh, could boost her in that race. Or, or do you think that that's uh, Democrats hoping that they'll win those races, but they'll, they'll still go right at the end of the day? We, we have three great candidates in Jen Kiggins, Yesley Vega, and Hung Kao. They each bring great experience and unique backgrounds to the table. They're veterans, small business owners. They, they've been in law enforcement, and they're running great campaigns. And I think that as, as they continue to talk to voters, uh, while their opponents take them for granted, we're going to see some surprises in Virginia, and I think it's going to be a great night for Republicans. Um, you know, they, they're talking about getting 
wasteful spending under control, combating inflation, and getting the price of gas down, um, and holding the Biden administration accountable. Uh, while, whereas their Democratic opponents are all, you know, voting 100% of the time, often with with Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, um, and and definitely taking their voters for granted. They promise to be independent checks on the executive branch, and they've given their vote away quite literally uh, allowed proxy votes uh, for other members. They can go and campaign uh, and spend, you know, millions of dollars in money to, to run false smears against their uh, Republican uh, candidates. Um, I think, I think we are going to have some good upsets in Virginia uh, on November. That's what you like to hear. And uh, yeah, like I, I would, I know this is outside of Virginia, but somebody who paints themselves in that light, a lot is uh, Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for the Senate in Ohio. He says, I'll be an independent voice. You know, I agreed with President Trump on trade policy, you know, to win over uh, Appalachian voters in Ohio, saying I'll be an independent voice. You go to 538, which has its flaws, but even 538 says he has a 100% Biden score. So I think that he has a very tough time. And a lot of the same Democrats in Virginia have very high Biden scores. So I think it's very hard for them to say, no, I haven't. I've been an independent. I've been like a Jared Golden, you could say, in Maine's second district. I've, I've pushed back on some key legislation and gotten concessions to be a more moderate or fiscally responsible uh, bill. I mean, look at like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. They play a huge role in Senate Democrats uh, bid to get the Inflation Reduction Act. Everybody wanted to see if Cinema or Manchin would oppose it. What were their demands? Nobody's asking individual House members in Virginia saying, oh, Congresswoman uh, uh, Spamberger or Congresswoman Luria, like, what do you want out of this bill? They're a reliable party vote. And so I think that makes them very vulnerable to everything the Biden administration has done. Sure, I, I bet a lot of some people like some of the things Biden has done uh, in Virginia, but to say on the whole, he's largely disapproved of. Uh, so I think that that will be a huge handicap um, for them. And as I mentioned before, uh, Youngkin just campaigned this weekend with uh, Yesli Vega, who's against Spamberger. And do you think his endorsement, he's also been going around the country endorsing different gubernatorial candidates. I know he went for Paula Page in Maine uh, not too long ago and Tudor Dixon in Michigan. Do you think his endorsement will carry a lot of weight uh, both in Virginia and then out of Virginia? Uh, or will it be more so the anti-democratic, anti-Biden sentiment that that will carry you know these Republicans in a, in a red wave? At the end of the day, these candidates are running their own campaigns, and I think they'll win or lose on their own merits. But I think that with this crop of candidates that we have, um, obviously they're well positioned to win. And having someone who's delivered on their promises consistently, like Governor Yunkin, and his approval ratings on the rise for that very same reason. I think having someone like him standing next to a lot of these candidates is great because it shows voters a contrast. Biden made a lot of promises and didn't deliver. And on the other hand, we have candidates that will hold him accountable and you know, have has the backing of one of the most uh, successful and popular uh, governors uh, in the country right now um, who flipped a, a seat from uh, blue to red. And I think it can only help having a united team for November. And it sends a great message to voters in the Commonwealth that when we make promises, we deliver. And at the end of the day, having a team in D.C. to work with Governor Yunkin is going to be great um, and continue the momentum we've achieved in Richmond so far.
I don't want to make any solid predictions about where Virginia will go and, and how people will vote in the future. But I do think that with the top tier slate of candidates that we have this year, especially, um, we're, we're going to see Virginia remain a competitive state. I'm optimistic that we can flip the Virginia State Senate, uh, win more seats in the House of Delegates, and flip those three congressional seats. And hopefully, you know, three years from now, we'll be seeing uh, another Republican governor um, in Winsome Sears, potentially. Uh, she's done a great job leading um, in the state Senate thus far. Um, and she's provided a great, uh, great partner to Governor Yunkin. So I think we have a, a good bench in the Commonwealth. And I think uh, when voters see what Republicans do in office, they will um, they will deliver, um, you know, victories for us just as we've delivered uh, for them. So I think uh, I think Virginia, there's a lot to be optimistic about. We're going to have a great night uh, on election night. And Winston Sears is somebody who. Um... I went, I went to actually Governor Youngkin's inauguration, and when she came on stage to speak, there was huge enthusiasm for her in the crowd. You know, not to discredit Governor Youngkin, but to an extent, it was more enthusiastic for her than for him. Like, there, somebody in the crowd was really chanting, win some, win some. And I saw this funny uh, meme on Instagram that said, you know, you win some and it's a picture of, of Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears, and then you lose some with a photo of Terry McAuliffe which uh, I think is, is just sums up the race very well. And she is very much liked and she's a different face. And I think that she represents the increasing diversity within the Republican party because it's breaking down that old stereotype that, oh, Republicans were the party of Wall Street and all the, you know, the business white old men, business elite class and saying, no, we're a, we're a multi-racial, multi-ethnic working class party. We're for the we the people, we're not just restricted to a to a race or or a gender or a dem, or a you know specific demographic. You know, it's a more wide ranging um, issue. And I believe Yesley Vega herself is Hispanic. Uh, she led the Latinos for for Youngkin Coalition, if I'm not mistaken. And so I think her being on the ballot really shows, uh, and of course also Jen Kiggins being a woman, shows that there is. Different, there are different voices in the Republican Party being heard in Virginia, and Hung Kao is, is Asian. I think he's Vietnamese. So you're having that 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 diversity of candidates across the Commonwealth, uh, which I think will speak to voters and say this is not, you know, your grandfather's or even your father's Republican Party. This is a reformed and renewed and revitalized Republican Party that was very dormant in Virginia since the late 2000s, but has now had this huge jolt of energy, and I think that will. That'll continue. I'm not sure. I, I would say uh, Virginia will, will go right at a presidential election in the next in 2024, for example. But I think there is a lot to gain at the state level. And I think in a lot of ways that could be way more influential in changing the whole culture of a state. I look at Governor DeSantis and what he's done in Florida. He's taken Florida for being that, you know, king of all battleground states. And I talked about this in the Pennsylvania episode that came before this one. So check that one out if you haven't listened to it yet. And how Pennsylvania's replaced Florida as the king of the battlegrounds. I mean, it's it, it has 19 electoral votes now. It's a big state, big, uh, diverse state as well. And it's influential now in what candidates try to appeal to. Everybody, it runs through Virginia now, not, uh, runs through Pennsylvania. It used to be Virginia, it used to be Florida, now it's Pennsylvania. And so I think that that's uh, where somebody like Glenn Youngkin and, and Winston Sears can really alter 
the the culture of the state and turn it back to being a more you know, traditionally conservative state uh, that sure it has its blue parts of, the, of uh, blue parts like Northern Virginia, but at the same time can elect a Republican governor every once in a while. It's not uh, a state Democrats can take for granted like California or like New York, where you know the Democrats could run a lamppost and and the lamppost would beat a Republican. But that's uh, yeah, Virginia is definitely a state that I think will be really important considering it's right by D.C. I mean, the key bridge connects uh, us here at Georgetown to Virginia and having you know B- D.C. being surrounded by two Republican governors. You now, I think, puts D.C. on notice saying, you know, watch out, like reliably blue states, Virginia and Maryland have Republican governors. Uh, you can't take voters for granted. You can't take de- even Democratic leaning voters for granted. So that that's something that I took away from the Yunkin win. I'm taking away now watching the enthusiasm and the different voices rising in the Republican Party. And I just hope that continues moving forward. Yeah. And, and on, on D.C. being surrounded by Republican governors, when Supreme Court justices were being threatened and harassed and targeted, um, especially with the assassination attempt against uh, Justice Kavanaugh, it was Republican governors who stepped up in securing um, their properties to make sure that they were safe. Um, it was Republican governors who have delivered uh, much needed relief at the pump uh, in, in both Virginia and Maryland. And it was uh, Virginia Democrats and Maryland Democrats that stood in the way of that. So we have a we have a great team on either end of D.C. And I think, as you said earlier, this isn't our, our parents' Republican Party in the sense that we now have a lot more uh, diversity and we have a deeper bench of candidates than ever before. And the reason for that is because often Democrats have taken communities of color, immigrant communities for granted. And we are talking uh, often for the first time to a lot of voters um, that have felt left behind. And we've activated these incredible candidates like Yesley Vega and Hung Kao, not just with our message, but because they themselves have seen what happens when Democrats are at the wheel. Uh, it's it's imminently clear that Joe Biden will preside over a fractured Democratic Party that is losing steam and Republicans are going to ultimately become a much wider tent, bigger tent for working class Americans, uh, Americans of color, women voters uh, and immigrants. So I think we have a great trajectory going forward, uh, thanks to leaders like Yesley Vega, Hung Kao and and Jen Kiggins. Yeah, it's breaking down the I would say racial demographic to more economic, I would say is, is now the, the disparity. I mean, 75% of Wall Street money went to Joe Biden, right? In the 2020 election. So having these huge swings in, you know, non-white areas, and but working class areas really symbolizes that turn of saying Republicans are united more by values, more than uh, like a racial common uh, heritage in that sense. Not to say we don't have a culture as a country, because we do, but it's that shared appreciation of, you know, all the gifts America gives to everyone, uh, of of the blessings that we have being Americans, and, and, and voting is one of those luxuries, and, uh, you know, being mostly safe streets. Um, I think Chicago might differ, but that's uh, another story. But just having these, you know, valuing America and saying we can't, let uh, the rest of the world dictate what America does and saying, hold up, we want to put our people, our workers first. And uh, that resonated with everyone. Like I know people who are, you know, I grew up in Portugal. I know people who are very skeptical of Trump and the Republicans when he won in 2016. 
who turned around and said, you know what, Trump is doing some good things, uh, especially on trade. He says, look, I may not agree with with Trump on trade in the sense it'll hurt the EU, taking from Portugal's perspective, but it's good for America. If you look at it from an American lens, he's doing good for America. And I think that those are the kind of Republicans we're seeing being nominated, like Hunkow and and uh, Yesley Vega and Jen Kickins in Virginia, who are going to advocate for that agenda and saying, we're, let's make people over politics. And I think that's now a slogan that's hopefully not becoming too cliched in the Republican Party, but it is something that is the message now. It's saying we're going to put our voters and, and the interests of our voters stay in tune with our voters. We're not going to be out of touch and, and do that as much as possible. Sure, the GOP isn't perfect yet, but every election cycle, I think it's improving. In this cycle, let's feel the candidates in, in Virginia and the state leadership in Virginia are really turning it for the better. Anyway, and so one last question I have for you is, well, there's a lot of rumors going around about Governor Youngkin's future, because Virginia, you can only serve one four-year term uh, without, uh, you can't run for re-election unless uh, there's another governor in between your two terms. So do you think he has wider ambitions outside of uh, the governorship? And if so, what are they? I haven't uh, talked to Governor Youngkin, so I, I can't speak to what he is planning, but I do know that whatever he ends up deciding to do, he will bring a tremendous record and background, whether it's running for Senate, running for uh, another statewide office, um, or running uh, for president eventually. I think whatever he decides to do, um, it will benefit our party. It will give us and our voters choices. It will give uh, it will give a sense that, you know, we have candidates of all of all stripes now. Um, so I think I think voters are going to be, uh, you know, very, very much welcoming Governor Youngkin's entry into whatever race he chooses once his term is up. Um, and I look forward to, to seeing uh, his future and, and how he'll transform Virginia in the next three years. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's his mission now. A lot of people did say uh, just to wrap up this uh, this point is. Uh, if he didn't win the governorship, let's say he made it very close, but narrowly lost to Terry McAuliffe, that would still be considered a good result for Republicans broadly. Like if it was a one point Terry victory that Tim Kaine was already preparing to campaign against a Glenn Youngkin. Since he wouldn't be governor, he would likely jump his, put his name in the ring for that race. So we'll see if he does it. And then Winston Sears would be governor of Virginia for a brief bit if Youngkin did win. But of course, it, we're all uh, these are all uh, just guesses, and, and uh, we're just thinking, at strategizing what could happen. It's a what if. They're all hypotheticals. We're not. Uh, we'll wait until Governor Yunkin makes official declarations. But uh, yeah, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. And, and before I go, I do want to plug that the District of Columbia College Republicans is now on WinRed. So if any listeners want to chip in and support our College Republicans in D.C. as we try and help flip the Senate and the House and help our friends in Virginia, we appreciate any gift you can chip in. We also are launching a merch store with beer koozies, T-shirts, golf balls, hats, uh, the whole nine yards. So any support would be greatly appreciated to all of our, our chapters and our members. Uh, so you can go to winred.com and search District of Columbia College Republicans. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, I'm very excited to welcome Andrew to the show, our first guest from the class of 2026. So welcome to campus. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, why don't you just give us your Georgetown intro? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here. My name's Andrew. Uh, I'm a freshman in the School of Foreign Service, hoping to major in international politics. I'm from the great state of New Jersey. I live in Sterling, New Jersey. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Right. So let's start with the first question is that New Jersey had a very surprisingly close election uh, for the governor's race uh, in 2021. In fact, New Jersey shifted more towards Republicans than Virginia because uh, 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 Jack Cittarelli only lost by 2% when Joe Biden won it by 16%. Virginia, Joe Biden won by 10%. Youngkin won by 2%. So that's a 12-point shift in Virginia, 14 points in New Jersey. Do you think that this shows that the Republican Party can still make moves in New Jersey going forward? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I've been talking to a lot of Democrat friends about this. Um, I was actually part of the Jack Cittarelli campaign. I did a little bit of grassroots stuff for him last year. Um, but it's definitely a surprise, New Jersey, like such a blue state. How could you think Republicans almost had a chance of winning the governor's mansion in a state where there are almost one million more Democrats than Republicans? I think that's why, um, you know, Jack ran a really good campaign. He ran on big issues, taxes, cost of living. Um, everyone knows New Jersey is one of the most unaffordable states in the union. And Jack hit those issues on the head. Um, he really reached out to all New Jerseyans, regardless if you're Republican, Independent or Democrat. And people... They support his message. I mean, they want to see an affordable state. They want to see good schools. They want to see lower crime. And this is an agenda that resonated with the people of New Jersey. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with the issues that were focused on the campaign. And I know a lot of Republican operatives here in D.C. were very skeptical of the New Jersey governor's race, uh, prioritizing the Virginia gubernatorial race. Not to say it was um, resources poorly spent. Yukon Youngkin did win. Uh, but I was also very shocked to see Jack Cittarelli do so well on election night. Like I have uh, family friends in still in New Jersey. It's my the state I was born in. And I was texting my mom's friends saying, make sure you go out and vote today for, for Cittarelli and for Republicans down ballot because it, it's going to be a lower turnout election than a, than a general election. And so every vote will matter, even in because uh, like in Somerset County, which is typically a blue county, it was like within 10 points. It was very close. So you saw New Jersey almost go red in a year where you know we're still in the post-Trump era. You know, Biden is in his first year in office. And that anger and frustration, I think, was seen in both New Jersey and Virginia, showing blue states aren't immune to Republican governors. We'll see about that at the federal level in this this November. Uh, but at least at the statewide level, both states are open to electing Republican governors as long as they hit the right issues, as long as they present themselves in, in a positive light, saying, I'm just I'm going to work for everyone. Uh, I'm not just going to vote for uh, a Republican. I'm not just going to be talking to, to Republican voters and make sure I'm governing for everyone. But one of the biggest upsets of the night was in the New Jersey State Senate, where uh, now State Senator Ed Durr, a former trucker, had a shocking upset against the incumbent Democratic Senate president, Stephen Sweeney. Uh, does this reflect a greater change in, in South Jersey in particular? Because a lot of people say uh, northern New Jersey is like the New York suburbs, you know, the 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 very blue part. And then South Jersey is Trump country. You see the MAGA flags. It's much more blue collar working class. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a pretty fair assessment. Um, obviously, it's important to remember that Sweeney was definitely part of that old South Jersey Democrat establishment. Um, you know, he had the machine backing him in uh, his district. And obviously, you know, that's fallen off. That, that's fallen off in the last couple of years. Um, Ed Durr's win, very good for us. Um, I've met Ed Durr myself. Uh, he's a great man. 
and he's doing really good things for that district uh, as state senator. I think it reflects a uh, further trend to the right, definitely in South Jersey. Um, when people say it is Trump country, I mean, it does hold some merit. Trump did have a rally there back in 2020. Um, but, you know, I, I've heard some concerns saying, like, you know, South Jersey splitting away from North Jersey, like becoming more to the right where North Jersey is a little more moderate. It's going to, quote, unquote, you know, split the NJGOP and alienate suburbanites in North Jersey. I mean, it does hold some water. Uh, we see in New Jersey 4 with the primary this past June, uh, Mike Crispy, who is a far-right Trump allied Republican, uh, gave Chris Smith, the incumbent there, definitely a run for his money in the primary. And we do see some other... Um, further right uh, Trump challengers and primaries popping up across New Jersey. Obviously, it's definitely a national trend um, with the Republican Party, and I think it is an issue that needs to be addressed sometime in the future. But I don't really see, um, you know, I, I don't see any major problems coming from this for the NJGOP. I think the future is pretty bright. Um, there is a plan in the NJGOP. A lot of people have been looking at, you know, the legislative elections taking place next year. And there are plans, you know, legislative districts 4, 14, 16 in the central South Jersey region. Um, those are seats prime for flipping. Yeah, I think New Jersey, there's a lot of room to grow uh, that isn't being talked about. So likewise in Virginia, I think they have their state Senate elections uh, next year as well. But one of the most interesting members of Congress right now, well, maybe in the 116th Congress, so the one before the current one we have, is Congressman Jeff Van Drew. He won New Jersey's 2nd District. That's way south. Uh, it's, I think, Atlantic City area. Uh, he won that as a Democrat in the 2018 blue wave in the House. And then over the impeachment uh, proceedings, the first round of impeachment proceedings over Hunter Biden in the Ukraine, uh, what the Democrats called the quid pro quo. Uh, quid pro quo. I get that right. Uh and so he switched parties. He became a Republican and he's de- certainly seen as a more moderate uh, Republican. I don't think anybody would differ on that. But at the same time, he's still in Trump's good graces, I presume, for standing up for him uh, in that first impeachment proceeding. And Amy Kennedy, who I believe was his opponent in 2020, they're saying, oh, the, the Kennedy dynasty is coming back. It's going to come out in in New Jersey's second district. And he won by a decent margin, uh, to my recollection. And I think that that, he's locked up that seat, I think, uh, for the Republicans for a while. But speaking of House seats, uh, redistricting wasn't the best for Republicans. We saw uh, Democrats consolidate their support in northern New Jersey, like uh, like Gothheimer, Congressman Josh Gothheimer's district was made much bluer. Uh, Congresswoman Mickey Sherrill's district was made much bluer. Uh, and Congressman Andy Kim's district was made bluer. Those three seats uh, with the current map in place, I believe, could all go Republican this cycle. Uh, but now likely only one of those three uh, is competitive uh, this year. Do you think that this shows Democrats are afraid of a Republican revival in New Jersey? Or am I just looking into it too much and thinking it's you know just partisan gerrymandering, just the Democrats trying to get ahead wherever they can? You know, I definitely think it reflects a certain Democrat fear after 2021. Uh, Jack definitely gave him a run for their money. Um, those three districts you mentioned, Jack won all of them. Um, and now the Democrats went back to the drawing board and with their allies in the redistricting commission that we had. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but there was a certain someone from Princeton who really had a big hand in that. Um, yeah, they, they redrew the map and it definitely was partisan gerrymandering. Um, it certainly is a shame that, you know, this has happened, but... This, this is the die that's been cast, and we have to play with it. 
Um, I still do think that Andy Kim's district, uh, the third district, is very much competitive. Bob Healy, he's got a lot of money behind him. He's a very he's a business owner. Um, he's from there. I think he's running a pretty good campaign there. Um, he's got the uh, NRCC backing. He's a young gun, um, and he's got a lot of money from National behind him. Should be good things in that district, I think. Um, and obviously looking forward to the legislative elections next year. There is a possibility uh, Republicans can take back the Assembly and even the State Senate. And, you know, in 2025, I mean, Jack Girelli's running. Who knows what happens? Um, obviously, it depends a lot on what happens a year prior in presidential. But, you know, I think there is a road to a trifecta here in New Jersey. Um, it's been a, nearly 20 years since uh, 2001. That was the last time we had a trifecta under Christine Todd Whitman. But I say it's in the cards sometimes next uh, 10 years. I think Republicans can take trifecta back in Jersey. Wow, it's a bold... Uh... A bold predict, well, not prediction, but a, but that would be something that would cause a political earthquake, to say the least. And to even consider New Jersey competitive, I think, is still unfathomable in many minds, both on the left and on the right. Uh, Democrats right now, I think, are really focusing their energy on like the South, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada. Maybe less so Nevada, but. The, the Sun Belt of those states that are moving away from Republicans. And maybe this is a chance for Republicans to make up ground in the Northeast. I mean, there is Republicans are near rock bottom. They have no members of Congress in in like New England area. In New York, they have a, like, they have like seven. Uh, in New Jersey, they have two right now. So there's definitely a lot of room to grow uh, in New Jersey and the Northeast more broadly. Let's talk about one specific race in particular. Now, this is my old district when uh, my family was based out of New Jersey, which is New Jersey's 7th Congressional District. That's northwest New Jersey. It, it stretches out from northwest New Jersey, which is like Morris County, Morristown area. Uh, it stretches all the way to the western parts of Essex County, which is a county that Newark is in. And their, the incumbent congressman, Tom Alanowski, is the only incumbent that's poised to go down if there is a major Republican wave. Even with a, with a Republican puddle, you could say he'd, he'd go down because it's only a Biden plus four seat now. Uh, but he's under an ethics investigation. Uh, but what are your thoughts on his Republican challenger, uh, Tom Kane Jr.? And do you think that the ethics scandals against Malinowski could bring him down? Yeah, so um, this is also my own congressional district. Um, it's definitely been redrawn over the years. Uh, the commission, um, they put Sussex County, which is in the northwest, right by the border of Pennsylvania, Warren County, Morris County, Somerset, a little bit of Somerset County, um, and Union County. It's all lumped in. Uh, Essex County got cut out, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty competitive race. Uh, there are definitely a lot of eyes watching this. Um, full disclosure, I was a campaign intern um, this past summer for the Tom Kane Jr. Uh, campaign on the Republican side. Um, and it's, it's a repeat of 2020, I'd say. Uh, this is the closest House race in 2020. Um, Tom outperformed Trump here in this district uh, by nearly 10 points. Um, and Tom Kane, uh, he unfortunately lost by less than 1% back in 2020. Um, that was definitely a hard loss to take. But in a year, you know, when Republicans got whacked up and down the ballot, it was a very good performance. Um, definitely diamond in the rough there. So, you know, I've known Tom for a very, very long time. He's been my state senator for my entire life um, in the 21st Legislative District. He's got a good record of reaching across the aisle, um, and he knows the issues. He knows that, you know, New Jerseyans are facing record high taxation, record high uh, inflation, and he knows the good people in New Jersey. Um, he's a fighter, and you know he fought for us in Trenton. He'll fight for us in D.C. Um, I'm very confident that he's going to win this seat. Um, 
you know, there has been some moves by the Malinowski campaign recently regarding abortion and certain other issues, but I still believe that, you know, the Kane campaign is a good campaign, and I think they'll pull it off in November. Yeah, the DCCC, of course, is going to get behind Malinowski as they do with a lot of their incumbents. I know they're having little complications right now with their members not giving their, paying their dues. I saw that come up in a Punchbowl News uh, rundown this morning. But I know that there isn't a Senate election this year. And if Bob Menendez were running this year, I think that he could be in trouble. Do you think that one of those seats, well, probably the Menendez one, I think Cory Booker is more well-established as as a senator and more well-liked among Democratic and progressive voters. Do you think like a Bob Menendez could go down in, in an election sometime soon? Uh, I mean, it, it depends a lot on, you know, say the machine in North Jersey. Uh, Bob Menendez draws a lot of his support from that Jersey City machine that he broke back in 2006 and then remade in his own image. Um I mean, we'll see. Obviously, the Senate is a much different animal compared to congressional or legislative district uh, or uh, state ledge elections. Um, just depends on the candidate we run. Yeah. Well, in addition to South New Jersey, you know, we talked about that those uh, trends there towards the Republicans. We also saw parts of Passaic County, Essex County, Bergen County all shift to the right. So it's the Newark area, the New York City uh, suburbs. And that really stood out to me, especially like Passaic County, Jack Chiarelli was winning that for a bunch, for the bulk of the night. If anything, the mail-in ballots that came in the day or two after uh, the election night is what gave Malin- uh, Malinowski, <laughs> that gave Phil Murphy, the governor, uh, the the win there. So that, I thought that that was particularly interesting and looking at the... Um, this would be a real political nerd move, but I looked at the New York Times detailed map of the 2020 election precincts and I looked in, you know, I, of course, I know parts of New Jersey and I looked at the parts that I knew and where they shifted. Uh, the parts of my grandparents used to live continue to shift Democrat. I mean, it's a suburb, predominantly Jewish area, and they tend to back the Democratic Party pretty solidly. But another part of New Jersey, which is more downtown Newark that I was looking at in the Ironbound which is the more Portuguese area, me being Portuguese-American. That was a big part of a a big community that I used to go to. tried to get there as much uh, uh, a couple times, just see uh, Portuguese life in uh, in Newark. And that area shifted heavily towards Trump and towards Republicans, which I think is part of a larger shift among uh, the Latino population and Hispanic population in the U.S. towards the Republican Party and towards, you know, common sense issues of, you know, securing our borders, lower, you know, lowering taxes, uh, law and order, tough on crime, etc. Do you think that these trends are here to stay, even in those deep blue counties? I mean, Essex County is what, 70, 80 percent uh, Biden votes. Do you think that there, there that Newark, it is a more minority uh, driven city. I mean, Cory Booker was the mayor of Newark for a while. Could there be inroads as we see the GOP becoming more diverse and, and having more of a ref- of a congressional slate of candidates that's more reflective of the, the American population as a whole? I mean, look at South Texas with the three uh, Latinas who are running there. We see m- a bunch of diverse candidates all across the, the country. Do you think that that could play a role in New Jersey too? Um, I, I def- definitely a very, very interesting trend there. Um, 
So first, the Newark question. Um, obviously, the Ironbound and North Ward of Newark have always been uh, less Democratic areas, um, just, you know, by virtue of their demographics. Um, the North Ward, you know, is an Italian-American part, um, and Ironbound, very much Portuguese there. Um, keep in mind, this is the same North Ward that, you know, birthed Anthony Imperiali and his entire gang of... Uh, well, I'll just leave it at gang. Um, gang of friends back in the 90s and the 80s. Um, it's a very interesting piece of New Jersey history, I'll say. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, obviously, I think uh, there are a lot of inroads to be made up in that part of North Jersey. Um, I want to especially focus on Bergen Line and Bergen County. Um, this is an area of Bergen County, right up by Union City, uh, that's predominantly Latino. And Jack outperformed there with the Latino population. Uh, almost, uh, He made significant inroads there uh, on election night back in 2021. And, you know, in fact, the NGGOPH recognized this, and they've started launching all these initiatives. Um, I have many good friends who work on these initiatives now, reaching out to the Latino community. So every other weekend, they go up there, they do civics classes, you know, they do voter registration drives. You know, people believe uh, in the NGGOP that, and also the GOP that, you know, Latinos are the future. And we see this in Texas. We see this across the country that, you know, Florida, Florida. Yep. Uh, you know, we see how the Latinos are starting to vote Republican. Um, definitely a very big trend to watch. And I think um, it might prove to have some interesting developments in the upcoming election. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. I mean, we have uh, some other episodes, I hope, in the cards to do Arizona and Nevada, which are states that are heavily more Latino than, than the average state in the U.S. And as well as uh, I think our next our next episode will be about Wisconsin and Michigan, which are two states I'm really interested to talk about as well. They're not as Latino driven, um, but Arizona, and Nevada, certainly. And I, I know that those are states that are really going to be razor thin. Uh, competitive that like Arizona I think is is a big state to watch to see uh, how their culture changes but I won't spoil that episode too much uh, let's keep the focus on uh, on New Jersey and just a little side note this is a little uh, funny joke our last episode was about Pennsylvania be sure to check that out if uh, you haven't already so it's a little sidebar but John Fetterman is running the campaign that Dr. Roz is from New Jersey I talked about this with our two Pennsylvanians do you think that that's that's a valid take that that Pennsylvania should uh, make fun of New Jersey? Are you gonna? Would you like to provide the New Jersey defense? I'll just say that New Jersey is the greatest state in the union. Okay, in Pennsylvania, eh, they could do what they want. I mean, here's just a fun fact: if Dr. Oz can win and Mark Kelly wins in uh, Arizona, that'll be four New Jersey senators uh, in the next Senate. So yeah, Jersey's coming for all y'all. So that's. Uh... Like Joe Biden said, he was the third Pennsylvania senator. There you go. You could have four New Jersey senators. I mean, we hope that there's only three that Mark Kelly doesn't win. Of course, yep. <laughs> but who knows? It is a possibility. And I think that that would be, that would be very funny because they like to say, oh, Dr. Roz is from Cherry Hill, you know, the Philly suburbs. He's not actually from Philly. But we'll see what the, the voters of Pennsylvania have to say on that. But thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on. Uh, it was a real pleasure having you and to talk about your home state of New Jersey, the Garden State. And be sure to check out uh, the other podcast episodes we have on your podcast streaming outlet of choice. Be sure to rate us five stars. Give us uh, your support. Uh, we really appreciate it. Be sure to follow the Georgetown University College Republicans on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, that is at Georgetown Republicans on Instagram and at Georgetown CR on Twitter to stay tuned with all the events that we have planned for our members and 
the wider DC community. We have a lot of campaign events upcoming with with Dr. Oz, unironically, and with uh, Yesley Vega in Virginia and other candidates that we're looking uh, to carry across the finish line. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day.